And good morning to you. I'm Dave Mitchell. And I appreciate Tim and has been with us for a, a year, but he's a third-generation Calvaryite. You know that? Uh, his grandparents and his parents, missionaries here at Calvary Church. And uh, then Tim and Natalie uh, joined us a year roughly or, or so ago. So I appreciate his, his good comments. We, uh, we want to gather together as a community. I remember it's about almost 20 years ago that I walked into this building for the very first time. I was just down here, and we were sort of dating at the time, you and I, uh, as a church. And we're sort of checking each other out whether we should get engaged and actually get married. And uh, the first time I walked into this building, I looked around and thought, man, this is a huge, huge room. I was just, my breath was taken away. So some of you may remember the first time you came in this room. You're a guest, especially even today. Like, this thing is vast. And uh, one of the things that uh, always has troubled me, and I've been here for now a couple of decades, can you believe it or not, but I've been here, and it's always a concern for me that we feel like we're really connecting together as a community, that we draw together uh, as a one another in caring for one another. And sometimes we can sit in the scattered parts and not feel that connection and feel very much alone. We can be with maybe a thousand other people but feel very much alone. We don't want anyone to go away feeling alone or lonely. So we did put those uh, uh, ropes back there. Part of it's pragmatic as people come in later. We'd love to have a place for them to come and sit and not have to walk all the way down the aisle in the middle of my message and sort of climb over a couple of people to get to the inner seats because we do like to sit on the outer rows, don't we? Don't we like those things a little bit better than the inner rows? But uh, So we want to provide a place for people to come who gather to us a little bit after the starting time and also to cause us to come together as a community. I often think, uh, you know, I, I do like, I sit in the same seat every Sunday. So I get that. I get that we get comfortable with it. And every time we have dinner at our home, I sit in the same seat around the table. I don't alternate around the table just to make sure all the chairs work out okay. And so I understand the habits, the creature habits that I have. Uh, But one thing that never happens in our home, because we have a kitchen table inside and a patio table outside, it never happens that I sit at the kitchen table and Joy sits at the patio table outside. Wouldn't that be an odd kind of a marriage to have us sort of sitting so far apart? We actually sit next to each other around the table, and believe it or not. We've been married for 41 years, and it still works. And so we love the idea of being close to those that we love and who will love us back. And so I've gotten a few notes from some of you when we put those ropes back there. Believe me, I, I get those. And if you'd like for me to respond, just send me another note. And I responded, I was, you know, I was trying to track down everything. It's sometimes hard. But uh, if you'd like for me to respond, I'd be glad to do so. But believe me, we hear you. We're concerned for the things you're concerned with. And we're sorry for the disruption that they may have created. But if we can somehow draw us together as a community, uh, I would love for that to happen. One of my concerns for this series and the next series, we're going to go into the book of Ephesians in this fall. The Ephesians is all about the body of Christ, every ligament, every joint, working together in concert with each other. My passion for Calvary in 2015, before we hit 16, is that we draw together in a healthy way in community with one another. That's why we emphasize life groups. Life groups are a great way to draw together. So it's not just in this room, but in other venues in which ministry at Calvary Church occurs. 
We want that to happen. So I know I'm speaking to a few who normally would sit somewhere that they can't now sit, but we respect the, the desires of those who may need to do that on occasion uh, for whatever medical or lateness arrival. That's fine, but we just want to continue to gather together. So that's a little bit of a follow-up to that, and, uh, and uh, so hopefully that's a meaningful thing. Are we, am I I'm okay up here? Am I, uh, check the jack. Check the jack. Uh, I don't know. It looks okay to me. <laughs> we really love Ryan Rail. Ryan is our great, uh, gifted engineering guy. Oh, I'm not used to people playing with my ears, but uh, appreciate Ryan. Ryan is the one who strung these lights along here, and just in full disclosure of things, uh, Ryan is a genius. He built these things from scratch. I've had a couple of people say, hey, how much money are we spending on some of the stuff when we have these budget issues? He built that stuff from scratch, and somebody asked, aren't we just burning up all that electricity by them? And so I asked him, well, how much electricity are we using for these lights that are up here? And he says, 40 cents, 40 cents every Sunday morning, 40 cents. And I'm willing to give 40 cents extra every Sunday morning just to make sure they stay lit. And, and Trevor, you know, I'm not the most artistic guy. And so I need, I need, I like analytics and outlines and organization in my brain. I just sort of function that way. Some of you may be like that. That's why we have outlines on Sunday sermons. And so I said, what, what does it mean? What does it mean? And Trevor came in here and says it means foundation. We move these lights that used to be up there down here because it sort of symbolizes this idea of foundation, that we stand on the foundation of the light of Christ. And so we want to stand on that lit foundation of Christ. So it's that symbolic value. You who work with the other side of your brain than my brain works on, uh, you probably already got that. But for the rest of us who have the other side of the brain that functions more radically, that's what it means. So that's a little bit of family talk for us this morning. Are we good? Can we move ahead? All right. Let me uh, invite you to take from your outline my analytical outline. Uh, This is how my brain functions. And uh, I want us to emphasize this whole true life, real love that comes from 1 John. 1 John 2, 12 through 17 is where we're going to be. And really there's a tremendous contrast as you see on the outline. We pursue spiritual maturity in the true life. We work together to overcome the world's life. There is a battle between the true life in Christ and the world's life outside of Christ. And we'll speak to some of these things, even that occurred in the Supreme Court this week. We see a more stark contrast to some of that that is being manifest today. In 1 John 2, 12 through 17, let me read the text and we'll get back into it again. Notice the repetitive nature of 12, 13, and 14, as we'll address that in a second. But let me read it. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for His name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away, 
and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And that's why this is so important. If I'm living in the world, I'm going to pass away and be forgotten and done with. But if I'm doing the will of God, if I'm doing the will of God, I will live forever. I don't want anybody in this service, in this hour that we spend together, to walk out of this room and not understand at least, if not at least make a commitment to Christ, so that you know that when these things are done, when the world is passing away, you're not passing away with it, you're actually going to live forever with Jesus Christ. That's what we want. So that's why it's so important that we understand these distinctions. Now there's a little thing that you may have on your car. It looks like this. That means, what does it mean? Not of this world. And so we are of this nature now where we're challenged to be not of this world, but we live in this world. So how do we, how do we balance that together? Paul's, ad- I mean, Peter, John is addressing that. There's all these, all these great writers in my brain. Here is where John is writing. He's writing probably from the city of Ephesus. You might have seen as you've been here the last few weeks. It is the current day Turkey, and there are the seven churches of Revelation. John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. And he spoke in Revelation 2 and 3 to these seven churches. And here he is ministering to them as well. The first thing that we're going to talk about are the two things that are on there, is that we pursue spiritual maturity in this true life. We need to grow in our maturity. We need to become more of what God wants us to be so that when the world is passing away, I'm living forever with Jesus Christ. That's what we want. Let's go back to the text. 1 John 2.12, and I highlight these three groups of people that John's writing to. And he repeats them twice. He says, I, have, I am writing, and then he says, I have written. So you'll see that. Let's read it again. I am writing to you, now little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Now he changes the tense. I have written to you. Now he has written to them. He wrote the Gospel of John. And so this is a message that is currently being written, but has been written before. And here's one of the little things that happens in Scripture. That the Scripture has very few themes, but that they are repeated over and over and over. God has very few themes that He teaches us, but He keeps repeating them over in Old Testament and New Testament ways. And so He wants to remind us. Peter says, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. So here He says, I have written to you children because you know the Father. I have written to you fathers because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you as young men because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome them. And just to take a little closer look, here we go. First John 5, 12, and 13, I'm writing to you little children. He uses actually two different Greek words for children. The first word for children that he uses there, little children, are all children of God. We're all those who have been born, and many of us born again. So it refers to everybody there. And several times in, the, in this letter, he says little children. He refers to us or them in Ephesus as little children. Because your sins have been forgiven you. That's the beginning point. I have written to you children. Now he uses a different Greek word. This word for children means a young child. A young immature child. So he's saying now I'm speaking to all of you who have been forgiven. But now I want to address those of you who have not grown yet in your faith. You who are young in your faith. 
because you know the Father. You're just beginning to know Him, but I want you to mature. The, the key that John is pushing for is that these three groups, little children, young men, and fathers, this is a progression of faith. And some people get stagnant. For example, here's this childlike immature faith. The book of Hebrews is written to a group of second-generation Christians who should have been advancing in their faith, but they're stuck and they're not growing. This is what he writes. For, and I highlight this line, By this time you ought to be teachers. An immature, stuck Christian is one who has had plenty of time to grow, but has not grown. Because everybody starts out young. We all start out as children. But if we're still a child as we're, when we're supposed to be an adult, there's a problem. You have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, the Bible. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. You should give up the Gerber food by the time you're in adulthood, right? If you're eating Gerber baby food and you're 20, there's a problem somewhere. Unless it really tastes good like dessert. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. That's the high sign of an immature believer. I'm not accustomed to the word of righteousness. So when God speaks truth into my life, I don't hear it, I ignore it, I do my own thing. That's an immature believer. But solid food is for the mature because who of practice have had their senses trained. Here's another childlike immature faith. We're no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. See, immature believers are tossed around by the fads of the day, by the latest, the greatest, those things that tantalize my feelings. Immature believers are constantly fickle going from this to that. Sometimes it's going from this church to that church. So what's the latest, what's the greatest, what's the most popular? And they simply can't stay steadfast and faithful, persevering to the end. And so they're like a pinball Christian who are being pointed and bounced from direction to direction, moving around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth and love were to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. Stop being a baby, he is saying. Uh, yesterday, Joy pointed out, and I watched this thing, it was really amazing, on Archie Manning, the uh, NFL quarterback. And he has three boys, and two of them are in the NFL, and they're all-stars in the NFL. Uh, Eli Manning and Peyton Manning. And Cooper Manning is the oldest of the sons. I was intrigued by this because it was fun watching these video clips of Peyton Manning and his older brother Cooper Manning way back when they are like three and, and five years old. As I was watching them, O. Cooper Manning would go up to Peyton Manning uh, and he'd push him to the ground. And Peyton Manning would get up and start crying like a little baby. Well, that's what he is. He's a little baby. And repeatedly they kept showing different video clips of different scenes where Peyton was being pushed to the ground and he'd come walking over to his dad crying, he did this to me, he did that to me, and crying and pouting. And Archie Manning says, man, those two boys as they were growing up, they were always fighting. They were always fighting. And Peyton was always getting upset and whining and complaining and crying. And I thought, what, what would happen if in the NFL today, Peyton Manning, every time an opponent knocks him to the ground, gets up and starts crying and looks for his daddy in the sand somewhere and wants to go over there and says, He pushed me to the ground, daddy! And starts fighting with his teammates. 
We would look at Peyton Manning and says, what a baby. Shouldn't you have been now, by now, have grown up? And there sometimes are believers who by now should have grown up and need again the elementary things of the Word of God, not words of righteousness. And so what John is addressing is the problem of little children who have never grown past a certain age and are stunted in their faith. And they continue to be as immature believers when they should have had by now growth. So he says, little children, start growing up. And so this is the journey. We need to, where am I in this? Because little children, we have all begun our journey in Christ. We've all been forgiven. We need to move beyond that. And secondly, young men, grow strong. Grow strong from the Word of God to overcome the evil one. I need to go from a little child to a strong man who where the Word of God is being poured into my life and I am growing in my faith as a result of God's Word and it's causing me to be more mature so the evil one is not tempting me and distracting me from my faith. Immature believers are constantly being picked on by Satan in a way that they're bickering and crying and whining and not getting along and and relationships are sour and poisoned. Those are immature things. That's what little two and three-year-olds do to each other, as Peyton Manning illustrated for me yesterday. But when I become a mature believer, I become like the young men who have been trained in their minds. Peter, or Hebrews writes it this way, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. I am practicing the Word of God so that I overcome the evil one. So if you are in a relationship where it looks more like a three-year-old than a 50-year-old, we want to help you grow beyond that so that you're not repeating the problems. You're repeating God's Word, and it's allowing you to grow in your faith. And then we pursue spiritual maturity in a true life, and some are fathers. We faithfully know and experience God through our lives. That's what he says. From the very beginning you have known God. Fathers are those mature believers who continue to walk the walk. And you see the signs of maturity and godliness and holiness. You see the signs of the Spirit of God of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see those things all over them because from the beginning they have learned, they have matured, they have experienced it all, and this is the culmination. We want people to go from little children to young men to actually have the privilege of being a father figure of the faith. That's what we want. And it changes us. It changes how we respond to situations. It changes how we react to things. When you're a father and you know the Father, you react differently when things happen. You react differently than the world. The world doesn't get us. But when you walk in maturity, we, we have a different response. I think one good illustration, again, I think Joy pointed this out. She listened to this message and we watched it together then afterwards. But Reverend Goff of the uh, Emmanuel Annie Church back in Charleston, South Carolina, where these nine people were murdered by this um, evil man. And then the families expressed forgiveness, as I referenced it last week, to this man who has killed their grandparent, parent, child. And the world looks at that and says, man, how do they do that? 
Something happens when the Word of God takes root. We become different people. I want you to listen. I love this guy. I want you to listen to a portion of his message as he explains why some people respond differently than the way the world thinks they should respond in those situations. Catch why he says this. Let's take a listen. Look and listen. There are some problems and issues that we are unable to provide answers to. But I want to suggest and recommend to you this morning, if you find a problem or situation too hard for you, I want you to know that it's just right for God. I had a witness here. When evil is in the world, you and I may not be able to control evildoers. But I want you to know the day that I know a man who's able to handle all of our problems. Some of us are still trying to seek answers to what happened last week Wednesday. Well, I've been there, done that, spent the night. And I've decided to turn it over. Y'all ain't here, man. I've decided to turn it over to Jesus. Uh, preacher, you saying right now, you mean we ought to forget what has happened? No, don't forget. But to remember that the God who created us all is the God who will make a way out of no way. Yes, there are answers that we're still waiting for. But the answer is still by leaving our hands in the hand of God. I'm reminded by some news media persons. Say, wonder why the nine families all spoke of forgiveness and didn't have malice in their heart. Well, on this Father's Day, you ought to know the nine families' daddy. If you knew the nine families' daddy, you would know how the children are behaving. Ourselves. If you knew our daddy, you would know that he says, weeping and drawn by night. But joy comes in the morning. Yes, if you knew our daddy, you would know that some days are up and some days are down. Almost level to the ground. But if you knew our
our refuge and strength. And then the first point you ought to remember from this brief message is that we ought to put our hope and trust in God. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stock markets may crash. Friends may leave you. Mom and daddy may be called back home to God himself. But if you keep your hand in God's hand, turn to somebody and say, he'll make a way somehow. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Gail's getting in the spirit there. Look at that reaction. Man, I feel so boring now, you know. But I hope you catch not just the spirit and the style, so dynamic, so different, so it's a very different church, but the message. How does someone forgive someone who has killed in bloody murder, in racist tones, a loved one like that? And why can they do that? Because you, when you know your daddy, your father in heaven, right? When you have that relationship with God Almighty through Christ, He changes our response to situations that otherwise, in the natural world, we would never do. And what John is addressing here is, I want to talk to you who are little children, you are young men and you who are fathers, but I want you to know God as the fathers know God. As he talks about the fathers knowing Gnosko, experiencing God in all of their lives, when they experience and know God in the fullness, it changes the way you react in situations. It changes your life. And when you're a little child and you're still acting like a little child and you're whining and complaining and crying and, and, and just pouting without maturity, and if you're a little child, okay. But if you should have been a father by now, not okay. So that's what John is speaking to. He's speaking to the things that changes our lives. So he says, I want you to grow in maturity in the true life. And then secondly... We want to work together to overcome this world's life because the world's going to draw us back into the way the world wants us to think. The Satan wants to do that. First John 5 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This world lies in Satan's power. There's no question about it. God says that we see evidence of satanic fingerprints in a lot of things that happen. So looking at the next portion of the God's Word, he says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Three things that I learned from this passage. To overcome the world's life that wants to draw me into a, a way of thinking and a way of living that is contrary to God's life, I need to understand and establish the proper priorities. And that's what he begins with. My proper priorities are do not love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't love the world, the things of the world, and love the Father at the same time. James 4.4 4 says that if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. You can't do both. And so he wants us to understand that. So what is the world? The world is not referring to creation. We can go to the Grand Canyon. We can go to Utah. We can see some beautiful portions of God's world. And we are seeing the majesty of God. So it's not physical earth. The world is not the universe around us, the sky. Because as uh, the Psalms tell us, Psalm 19, the, those things reveal the majesty of God. 
The world is the value system that is contrary to God's value system. The world has a value system. God has a value system. So when John is speaking of the world, simply think of values that are contrary to God. And then you know what the world is. And those values are going to suck us in. One, two areas in the world's values is one is truth. First John 4, 5, and 6 says this, They, those of the world, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, the world's values. Those are the people that are out there. And the world listens to them. So there are worldly values of people that speak to that. We are from God. We, we don't listen to that. We distinguish between that. We who are from God, he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. That's why it's so hard when you see things that are going on in the culture today, you see headlines in newspapers, you see decisions that are being made by courts out there that are contrary to what we believe God's Word says. God says they're not going to listen to us. They don't care about God's values. The world has its own value system. And remember, 1 John 5, this world lies in the power of the evil one. It shouldn't surprise us that the world comes up with a value system and gets stamped by the Supreme Court as being a value system that is legitimate and legal. That shouldn't surprise us because that is the world's value system. And so they don't listen to God. He who is not from God does not listen to God. But for you and me in this room... By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We need to understand that as I grow from little children to young men to being a father, I then therefore am able to discern between what is true and what is error. I better be able to do that. Interesting survey in the Pew U.S. Religious Landscape Survey. 70% said many religions can lead to eternal life. That's the world's value system. The world says, 68%, there's more than one true way to interpret the teachings of my religion. So that is the world's value system. I came across this. It's a little bit hard for you to read. I'll read it. Here's Charles Darwin. If you've got children or grandchildren in the university system, this is Charles Darwin who was being taught to them. Charles Darwin once said, to suppose that the eye could have been uh, formed by natural selection I freely confess, is absurd to the highest possible level, degree. Charles Darwin. The eye could never be formed by natural selection. What does Darwin know? Natural selection. And so even those who are of the world, although we're not of the world, understand the things that they say just don't make sense, but they still go with it because they're of the world and we are to be not of the world. Now, this last week, I'm just going to speak to it just very briefly. The Supreme Court made a decision about homosexual marriages and that they are permissible in every state and that they somehow found it in the Constitution that nobody had seen until they found it last week. It was there. We just weren't smart enough to find it. And so, sorry for my sarcasm. But as you think about that, as I just said, the world's value system is going to be contrary to our value system. What is our value system? Our value system says that there are sins that are wrong, they will always be wrong. And when you take away absolute truth, then you can begin to have your own truth. Our value system says that we should love everybody regardless of what they do. As you just heard Reverend Golf, when the Father in Heaven is our personal Father. We children, we act like the Father in Heaven. 
How does the Father act to those whose behavior is contrary to God's Word? What does the Father do to them? For God so loved the world. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever should believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Well, if that's what the Father says, then I want to be like the Father. I want to be a child of the Father that reflects the Father's values. I don't want to be like the world that reflects the world's values. The world might say you should have vengeance, you should have justice, you should have judgmentalism, you should have condemnation. If I don't like you, I have a, will, I have a privilege to say whatever I want to say and judge and condemn those things and be intolerant and judgmental and unaccepting of those things that are different than me. Well, if that's the world's value system, God's value system is inclusive and loving and kind. Out lowering the standards of righteousness. And so that's why I said a long time ago, and I'll say it again, that whether it's homosexuality or any other behavior that we believe is contrary to God's Word, we need to engage with people, but don't endorse the behavior. Engage, but don't endorse. And I've had people push back and say, well, how do you know when you're endorsing? I just know that God is a God of wonderful grace, and He's going to be more gracious to us if we err on the side of grace than if we err on the side of judgment. Because when we go into judgment, then we're beginning to take over God's territory. Because God does that. I can't do that. All I can do is here's what God says and here's how God acts. For God so loved the world. And He loved me before I was ever saved. He loved me when I was under His wrath. And you and I, that's what we need to do. So when I saw this on the screen here, uh, six things to do after the Supreme Court decision in gay marriage. I read this, I think it was on Friday. I get all these things online. So I was reading that. Well, that's interesting. There's six things we should do. And all oh, these you know, homosexuals, the Supreme Court, you know, get a little grumbling, you know, sort of carnal. And then I scrolled down the screen. I looked at the bottom, the same screen. And here was what it says at the very bottom. A pastor resigns after admitting an inappropriate relationship. This is Billy Graham's grandson. This is news. Just came out this last week. Same time. Here's Billy Graham's grandson, pastor of the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. Some of you know D. James Kennedy. That was his church. It was kind of a big deal when he went there. And now he has resigned because of an inappropriate relationship. I thought, who am I to sit here and cast dispersion on certain behaviors when we haven't got our own house cleaned up well enough yet? We've got our own issues. So we sin as an equal opportunity employer. And I shouldn't act like I can look down on some when I know that those who are my brothers and sisters are struggling just as much. You and I need to be people of love and grace. Engage, but don't endorse. The second area that we need to understand is the area of service. Truth and service. For Demas, having loved this present world, some people love this world so much that they stop serving and investing in God's work. And so I've got these two areas here. The priorities. Set your priorities. Priorities of truth. I will grow in God's truth like young men who overcome the evil one because they're in the Word of God. And then secondly, that I invest my life into God's work. I invest in those things that God is doing. I don't invest in those things that the world is doing. I need to distinguish between that. That my life 
my walk, my words, the truth of God, that's my priority list. I will overcome the world's value system when I am investing in God's value system, His truth, His service. Now let me give you an illustration. In our history book, we have a history book here. We're old enough that we have a big history book. We're about 80 some odd years old now, but way back in the 70th anniversary, we wrote up a history book. And in our history book, if you look there, there's a uh, couple, Don and Mary McAlpine. Mary McAlpine just died last year, 96 years old. Don and Mary McAlpine. Don became part of Calvary Church. He was the first youth pastor hired at Calvary Church and served the students in 1948. 1948, the very first youth pastor. So he invested in that youth generation at that time. And then he and, Don, he and Mary were called into missionary work, and they went over to Japan and served there and started uh, about five different churches and had a great ministry there. Don died about 1982, 83, somewhere in there. Mary continued on for a couple of years, and they came back here. And then just last year, Mary passed away at age 96. Why do I say all that? Well, number one, they're a, they're a saintly couple. They are the fathers of the young children, young adults, and fathers. They are the fathers. And part of that is because it's reflected in how they serve the Lord. Not just in their service in this lifetime, but they continue to serve the Lord now. I'll tell you why. Mary McAlpine, old, poor, missionary, right? She left her portion of her estate to Calvary Church. That portion of her estate that she left to Calvary Church is going to allow us to complete the generation project for a student ministry center by December of this year. Don McAlpine began his ministry in a student center building in the students' lives. Don's ministry continues to build into students in a student center today. It's that kind of foresight. It's that kind of investment. It's that kind of value system that God honors. When you grow from a little child to a young adult and you become then the fathers who live like the Father in heaven, you know God's truth, but you also invest in God's ministry. And now here's Donna Mary McAlpine that I wouldn't be talking about right now had their legacy not continued to build into Calvary Church even while they're in heaven because the legacy of their finances are continuing to work in the lives of students. That was his first mark of ministry. I want to challenge us. Let's be people who have God's priorities that are so contrary to the world's value. The world wants me to... I was down at the Harley shop the other day picking up a part from my bike and I'm walking around looking at the showroom and I'm thinking, wow, I need that. I want that. I deserve it. Thank you, Michael. This afternoon I'm heading back down there. We have this world system, and this is what he's talking about here. Defend against those kind of temptations. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, it's not from the Father. That's not from the Father. 
It's from the world. I need to know what the world is trying to do to me. How is the world dragging me into its value system? And so breaking those things down, as you're saying, there is the lust of the flesh. My body says, I need it. The lust of the eyes. My eyes looked and I looked. Oh, that would be a nice part on my bike. Boastful pride of life. My heart says, I deserve it. You're way ahead of the game there, Michael. This is this value system that corrupts God's value system. I need to distinguish between those things. I put a whole bunch of stuff on the digging deeper in the backside that we don't have time to look at right now. But I encourage you to spend a little bit of time in reading that through. Because I take Genesis 3 and show you how it reflects in Eve and Adam. And then also in Matthew 4 where Jesus had the same battle. Jesus had these same three values that the world was trying to throw at him in the Matthew chapter 4. This is not new. This is the way Satan works. This is a constant theme that he gives to us. So God says, I want you to understand, when am I the lust of my flesh? When is my body craving something I shouldn't have? And for some people, it's an anger that makes me feel justified because I release it. For some people, it's alcohol and drugs, and my body needs it, so I think I'm justified in soothing the pain for some people it's overeating and i eat all this stuff i shouldn't eat and it corrupts my body but it's comfort food and i feel like i'm satisfied better i need to make sure that my body is not saying i need something that god says no no you really don't and that i'm not looking at things that my mind says "Mm, not bad or pride of i put the five p's on there go through those evaluate yourself are you driven by those value systems And then finally, there will be consequences to every action. The world is passing away and also it's lost, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. And so I'm in this battle. I want to live the true life that is maturing me, become a little child, a young man, and a father. But secondly, I need to withstand the world's value system of the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life that wants to drag me back away from God's value system. But I better reflect it in my life because there are consequences to whatever choice I make. The world's passing away. It's lust also. God says someday that's going to be gone. Look at that thing in eternity's value system. Look at where you're going to spend that money. Look at where you're going to invest in those areas of your time. Make sure you're investing in things that won't just go away once the world goes away. Invest in those things that will last in eternity. And that's people's lives. It's the ministry of Jesus Christ. When I invest my dollars and my time in those things that God's put before me, it's going to last forever. Why would I want to continue to invest in those things that God's just going to wipe out someday? And I say, well, it was fun while it happened, but now it's gone. You and I need to make a choice. Choose the things of this world and we'll perish with them. Choose the things of God and we'll live forever. And God says, that's your choice. There's just the two. There's no in-between. There's no gray. It's the question is, are you following the world or God? Whose value system is being built into your life? Whose value system is being reflected in your life? Will you look at your bank statement? Is it God's value system or the world's? You look at your time, use of the time, God, the world. God wants us to grow in those areas. I pray for us that we would be those people that are maturing from little children to young men 
to fathers that really know God and live for Him. Let's pray. Help us, Father, as we live this life. Father, it's so tempting to see the things of this world that will draw our hearts and our minds and our flesh and to realize they're just going to pass away. Why would I want to invest in what passes away when I can invest in what lasts forever? God, help us to be the people that are maturing in our faith, that are reflecting the fact that you're our daddy and we're withstanding the value systems of the world that wants to tempt us. Help us to have your priorities. Help us to know what they are. Help us to reflect them in our lives. And Father, may all that we do lasts for eternity's sake. Help us to be followers of Jesus. So we commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.